This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Florida man calls 911, says he needs a ride to Hooters. Florida man tries to walk out of a store with a chainsaw stuffed down his pants. Florida man trapped in an unlocked closet for two days. We're here, guys. We made it. The Hurricanes and Flocka State. I've been itching to do the Florida episode, not only because of the funny headlines, but also due to the fact that they hand out the death penalty like candy on Halloween. This state is a fucking goldmine for stories of the condemned and their crimes. As my favorite podcast host puts it, in Florida, if you do the crime, you die. I have a few very loose ties to Florida. My Arizona grandma lived there for a time, as did my dad, who made his living there stealing motorcycles and doing other shady shit before I was born. One side of my husband's family is southern, and they at one point owned a significant amount of land in Florida. I've never actually been down there, but it's on my list of miserably hot places I have to visit before I die. Despite being a born and raised Utah, I can say without any hesitation that Floridians are my people. Maybe that's just the white trash blood flowing through my veins, though. Florida has pretty much always had the death penalty, and it seems unlikely that they'll ever abolish it. Their current governor, Ron DeSantis, doesn't fuck around and has signed a bill into law that authorizes the death penalty for adults convicted of sexual battery of a child younger than 12. Love him or hate him, the man is doing Florida a favor. Sword and Scale covered the case of Jessica Lunsford in episode 206. It's a case that I actually remembered from childhood. I recognized her face when I looked her up after listening to it. That case fucked me up so bad, but it is one of many that makes me appreciate what DeSantis is doing by signing that bill into law. We need it everywhere. Child rapists deserve to die. You can't change my mind. This is going to be a long episode, so buckle up. Florida man arrested while trying to warn Space Force about battle between aliens and dragons. That headline has nothing to do with this first case. I just wanted to add that in for some extra flavor. Some people murder for love, some for revenge, some for money, and some to cover their own ass. Robert Hendricks and his cousin Elmer Scott broke into a house in 1990. That's it. That's the story. Death penalty for both for burglary. What were you expecting? This is Florida. Don't do the crime if you don't want to die. Any crime. I'm kidding, obviously. They aren't that barbaric. Elmer Scott was caught soon after the burglary and made a deal with the prosecution that he would testify against Hendricks and plead no contest to a reduced charge. Because of what Scott had told the cops, Hendricks was apprehended and charged for his role in the crime. He was offered a plea deal. Four years in prison and five years probation for armed burglary. His court date was set for August 28, 1990. Hendricks didn't want to take a plea deal. Being as familiar with the court system as I am, there's a part of me that understands why. I've seen the sneaky shit prosecutors do, especially to people who can't afford to fight their case. 
They don't give a shit about justice, they just want their win. They'll offer you whatever they can to get you to plead guilty. I can't help but ask though, if you aren't willing to rot in prison for a couple of years, why are you committing armed burglary? There's always the chance of being caught. You have to factor that into any decisions you make. Before his court date, Hendricks told a handful of people that he wanted to kill Scott to prevent him from testifying. Dead men can't snitch, and the state would have a hell of a time convicting him without their star witness. Hendricks even told his girlfriend, Denise Turbyville, of several plans he'd come up with to carry out the murder. He went out looking for an untraceable pistol to use in this murder, and on August 27, 1990, the day before his court date, he managed to get his hands on one. Hendricks put together a homemade silencer and test-fired the gun on his property. At around 11pm that night, he made up his mind that he was going to carry out his plan. He told Denise to get ready and that they were going to Scott's house. Denise drove him there and dropped him off outside. She then drove to the county line and waited for Hendricks to come back. Several gunshots and a little bit of time later, he did just that, telling her to quickly leave the scene. When they arrived back at home, they kept all the lights in their house off. Hendricks burned his clothes outside and then recounted to Denise what he had done. Elmer Scott was shot once in the head. Scott's wife Michelle had tried to fight Hendricks off and was met with a knife to the throat. She was also shot. Three times. Hendricks then hit Scott over the head with the gun and slashed his throat as well. Hendricks was a pretty obvious suspect and he was quickly arrested. He faced two counts of conspiracy to commit murder, two counts of first-degree murder, and one count of armed burglary. Denise and other witnesses testified that Hendricks had committed these murders to prevent Scott from testifying against him in the burglary case. He was found guilty on all counts and received 30 years each for the conspiracy charges, life for the burglary. How is that worse than conspiracy to commit murder? And death for both murder charges. In the mind of Robert Hendricks, this was better than four years for armed burglary. Was he really expecting to get away with it? One of the conspiracy convictions was reversed and the sentence was vacated, but that didn't change anything. He was still going to die for his crimes. During an appeal, it was claimed that Hendricks had abused drugs from a very young age and could have been suffering from benzodiazepine rage at the time of the murders. He also tried to claim that his counsel was ineffective. Isn't that always a thing? You didn't win for me, so you were ineffective. No, Robert, you're fucking guilty. There's a difference. Stop dragging it out and just go down with dignity. Denise Turbyville pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and was given 75 years in prison. Florida got it right with this one. She helped her boyfriend murder two people, but since she didn't pull the trigger, she didn't hang for it. She instead has to spend the rest of her days in a cage, as she should. Robert Eugene Hendricks was executed by lethal injection on April 23, 2014. He sat on death row for nearly 33 years. Although I feel that Florida is pretty fair in their sentencing, I have to state that they let people sit for way too long before they finally get the needle. The victim's daughter, Rachel Scott, was only five months old when her parents were killed. She had no chance to get to know them before they were cruelly ripped from this world. Hendricks spared her, possibly not even knowing that she was there, 
but she had to grow up knowing that a member of her own family was the reason that she didn't have the love of her parents. She said she hopes her parents are remembered for who they were as people. I plan on keeping them alive in my heart and suggest everyone else do the same. I will always continue to tell their story. Elmer's sister Lisa Hunt also offered her thoughts. She said that the execution brought a sense of relief. I feel today, as we watched my cousin die, justice, only because he is finally dead. Hendrix declined to offer any final words. His last meal was pork chops, sausage gravy and biscuits, German chocolate cake, and a soft drink. Florida man slaps woman with slice of pizza during argument. Again, nothing to do with this case, but there's a similarity or two. Domestic violence cases fuck me up. You know this by now if you've listened to any other episode. There's something especially disturbing about people who can't let go of their failed relationships. This next guy, though, he is a special kind of fucked up. The kind that you can't rehabilitate. John Ruthel Henry was an unstable man. I'm sure there are many other words that could describe him, but unstable is all-encompassing. One August day in 1975, he was driving around Dade City with his common-law wife, Patricia Roddy, and her young daughters. He and Patricia began arguing, and he pulled into a parking lot in Zephyr Hills. Something in Henry snapped. He stabbed Patricia 30 times while they were in the car before running off into the woods. Those poor kids. Holy shit. Most of Patricia's stab wounds were to the neck and upper body. She really didn't have a chance. Henry was apprehended very quickly after he took off and was charged with second-degree murder. He pled no contest and was given 15 years. With the chance of parole. If Henry were to serve that full 15, Patricia's daughters would be 17 and 18 when he was released. Maybe Florida wasn't always so smart about deterring crime. They let him out after seven years. Imagine that. Seven years for murdering a woman in front of her two toddlers. I can't wrap my head around that one. So Henry got out and got his shit together. He met and married a 28-year-old convenience store clerk named Suzanne Overstreet. They seemed happy together. Henry even stepped up to raise her four-year-old son, Eugene. This marriage would prove to be like Henry, though, unstable. Both he and Suzanne were arrested multiple times for possession and distribution of drugs. Henry himself would also catch numerous firearm charges in this time. By August of 1984, Suzanne had fled to a women's shelter, fearing that her husband would hurt her or her son. She went so far as to try to get a restraining order against him. She did everything right until December 22, 1985, when she let him come inside her house to discuss getting Christmas presents for Eugene. An argument ensued, like always, and Henry ended up stabbing Suzanne 13 times. After the stabbing, he sat and watched Suzanne bleed out while he smoked a cigarette. After she finally gave in to the end, he rolled her up in a rug before stealing a car and kidnapping her son. This is the part that really fucks me up. This little boy was completely innocent. He did nothing wrong. 
but Henry drove him out to a field and stabbed him to death behind a chicken farm. Why? Seriously, what the fuck, dude? Some people don't deserve to live on this earth. The next day, after Suzanne failed to show up for work, her sisters discovered her body. Neighbors reported to police that they had seen Suzanne's husband, John Henry, leave with her son. During their search for him, they discovered that he had gotten a motel with another woman. He was arrested by the same deputy as the first time he murdered someone. Ten years later, and he got him again. Probably wondering why the fuck he was let out of prison in the first place. Henry was taken in for questioning and confessed to murdering little Eugene. He took the police to his body. He then admitted guilt in the killing of his wife. Because the crimes took place in two different counties, he would have two separate trials. Henry confessed to both murders. Cut and dry. That's it, right? Not exactly. Henry had low-grade schizophrenia and was intellectually impaired. This, combined with his drug and alcohol dependency, made the case complicated. His attorneys argued that he was not eligible for the death penalty. Psychiatrists determined that Henry's condition didn't impact his judgment and that he was able to distinguish between right and wrong. In Hillsborough County, the jury found Henry guilty of first-degree murder in Suzanne's case and voted unanimously to put him to death. The trial for Eugene's murder would take place in Pasco County, and the jury was shown an extensive amount of evidence including autopsy photos of the little boy. They convicted him of first-degree murder again and voted 12 to 0, unanimously, to sentence Henry to death for this one too. Four years later, the Supreme Court of Florida determined that the jury had been prejudiced in Eugene's case due to how much testimony was given about the little boy's murder. Why would that make any difference? A child was stabbed to death by a grown man. A grown man who confessed and brought the police to the body. No jury is going to let him off easy for that, autopsy photos or not. Henry was retried for both murders, and once again, he was found guilty and received death sentences. He wasn't getting out of this. John Ruthell Henry was executed by lethal injection on June 18, 2014. Selena Geiger, Suzanne's niece, would finally receive some closure. She had been a child when the murders occurred, and the impact this tragedy had on her was immense. She was there to witness his execution. I actually feel good. I don't feel sorry for him. I wish it could have been different. I wish he could have died the way he killed them. Henry's last words were, I can't undo what I've done. If I could, I would. I ask for your forgiveness if you can find it in your heart. He refused a last meal. Florida man arrested for trying to rob Waffle House with finger guns. You've been waiting for the 80s serial killer, haven't you? I'm sure you know which one I'm going to tell you about. There's a big one in Florida, perhaps the most famous one to ever exist next to Jack the Ripper. Theodore Robert Bundy is his name. But that ain't how I do things. There's another raping, murdering psychopath down in the Sunshine State. In fact, there are two in this case, and I had never heard of them. Born in September of 1952, Fred Waterfield would go on to play football in high school. I can't find much else about his life leading up to his crimes. 
He was charming and good-looking and had no problem using that to his advantage. There is a lot more information on his cousin, who was born a little less than a year after him in August of 1953. David Allen Gore was a depraved man without a doubt. This became evident when he was fired from his first job as a gas station clerk for drilling a hole between the men's and women's bathrooms. There is no innocent explanation for that. He would go on to become an auxiliary sheriff's deputy, which would aid him in his rampage. These two men were known as the killing cousins for what they would go on to do together. Their first two victims were 48-year-old Sang Huang Ling and her 17-year-old daughter Ying Hua Ling. On February 19, 1981, Gore confronted Ying and used his auxiliary badge to coax her into his truck. He then drove her to her own house and discovered that her mother was home. Both of them were kidnapped. They were taken to the citrus grove where Gore was employed. This place would become a graveyard. After tying Sang tightly to a tree, the pair took turns raping Ying before killing her. Sang slowly choked to death. As if the act itself wasn't cruel enough, their bodies were dismembered and put into oil drums which were buried in the citrus grove. Just five months later, a 35-year-old tourist from California named Judith K. Daly would be enjoying a day at the beach. She was so caught up in the Florida sunshine that she didn't notice the two men watching her. By process of elimination, they figured out which car was hers and disabled it. Later in the day, Judith packed up her things to head back to her hotel and get some dinner. She tried to start her car, and nothing happened. She was stranded in an unfamiliar place. Panic ensued, but a strange man quickly appeared and offered to take her to a payphone to call a tow truck. Judith was normally very cautious, but this was a desperate situation. Imagine being that far from home, literally on the other side of the country, and your car shits the bed on you completely randomly. That is terrifying. Once Judith got in the car, Gore pulled a gun on her and handcuffed her. He then called Waterfield and met him out in a deserted area where they both raped and tortured Judith before she was strangled and shot to death. Her body was allegedly fed to alligators in a swamp. Gore would spend some time behind bars for armed trespass after police found him crouched in the back of a woman's car with a gun and some handcuffs. He ended up getting paroled and went right back to doing shitty things to innocent women. Hitchhiking was a very common thing in the 80s. I know for a fact that it's a strong contributor to serial killers terrorizing people during this time. It doesn't happen as much anymore, but I actually saw someone hitchhiking in Salt Lake earlier this year. Dude looked meth out of his mind. No way I would have let him in my car. They each their own, though. I've had my share of sketchy shit happen to me in my 28 years, and I've learned to never trust a tweaker. Never trust a strange man offering you a ride, either. I didn't have to learn that lesson the hard way. True crime helped cement that into my mind. On May 20th, 1983, just two months after Gore was paroled, he and Waterfield would strike again. Two teenage friends, Angelica Lavallee and Barbara Ann Byer, ran away from home and were hitchhiking. They got into the wrong car. Both were raped before being shot in the head. Barbara was dismembered and buried, while Angelica was dumped in a canal. Hitchhikers were the main targets of this disturbed duo. 
On July 26, 1983, they'd strike again. 17-year-old Lynn Elliott and her 14-year-old friend Reagan Martin were trying to get to the beach. They made the mistake of getting in the car with these deranged men. While driving down to Vero Beach, Fred Waterfield saw his sister in a passing car and instantly became paranoid that she'd seen him. He asked to be let out of the car. Gore would be on his own for the first time. He knew the girls would be harder for him to control on his own, so he decided to drive them to his parents' house. They were separated and tied up. Gore spent the afternoon raping them both. While Reagan was being assaulted, Lynn managed to break out of her binds and make a run for it. She ran out of the house, completely naked, screaming for someone to help her. Gore heard the commotion and ran after her, also completely naked. I can't help but laugh at how ridiculous he must have looked with his dick flapping around. Lynn tripped in the driveway and Gore caught up to her, shooting her twice in the head. This murder was witnessed by a boy in the neighborhood who had been out riding his bike. The boy went home and told his mom. Police were called, and the boy took them to where he had seen Gore dragging Lynn's body up the driveway. Gore wasn't going down without a fight. He was commanded to come out of his house with his hands up, but instead chose to lock himself inside. After a relatively short standoff, he surrendered and named his cousin Fred Waterfield as his accomplice. What a dick. Waterfield wasn't even there for this one. Police searched the house and found a very frightened Reagan tied up in the attic. She had survived. Lynn's body was located in a car that Gore had borrowed from his mother. Though she didn't make it through this terrifying ordeal, she is the reason her friend survived and the pair of sadistic killers was caught. To no one's surprise, a look into Gore's past revealed that he and Waterfield had been accused of raping a woman in 1976. They were outraged and claimed that the sex was consensual, therefore no charges were filed. What the fuck? Not even an investigation. Okay. Gore was indicted on two counts of murder, kidnapping, and sexual battery on August 10, 1983. The state had him dead to rights in this one thanks to the surviving witness. He was screwed. I think he knew it, too. He ended up confessing to killing at least five women and girls. At least. Good lord. He eventually led police to the bodies of Sang, Ying, and Barbara. On March 16, 1984, Gore was found guilty on all counts. The jury voted 11 to 1 to have him executed. Lynn Elliott's father, Carl, made it a point to go see his daughter's body after the autopsy. He said he did it so he would always remember what Gore had done to her. He wanted to ensure that even if he grew soft and forgiving over the years, he'd be able to picture all the injuries and remain in support of putting Gore in the ground. Gore would later get two life sentences for killing Barbara and Angelica as well. He'd end up with a total of five life sentences in addition to the death sentence. In 1989, a judge decided to overturn the death sentence, stating that Gore should have been allowed to introduce evidence that would back up his claims of being drunk during Lynn's murder. How many fucking times do I have to say, alcohol ain't the issue. Guns don't shoot people and cars don't drive drunk. There's a human being, or in this case, a monster, doing these fucked up things. 
There was a resentencing hearing in 1992, and Reagan Martin was there to testify that Gore was not, in fact, drunk at the time. She said he was totally sober, with clear eyes, not slurring his words, not smelling like a bar, apparently coherent enough to restrain two girls without any help, and the jury resentenced him to death. He would sit on death row and work his ass off trying to appeal his sentence for way too long. David Allen Gore was executed by lethal injection on April 12, 2012. That's 28 fucking years rotting in prison before they took him out. Most of his victims didn't even live that long. He cut so many lives short for no reason other than wanting to get his dick wet and being too much of a creep to do it consensually. Gore's last words were, I want to say to the Elliot family, I am sorry for the death of your daughter. I am not the same man I was back then 28 years ago. I hope they can find it in their hearts to forgive me. His last meal was fried chicken, french fries, and butter pecan ice cream. Fred Waterfield was given two life sentences for Barbara and Angelica's murders. He was also charged with manslaughter in Lynn's death and given 15 years. He's currently living in a cage in the Marion Correctional Institute and has no chance of getting out of there alive. Florida man pulls gun at Starbucks over cream cheese. I'm not a Florida man, what the fuck? So, I've covered a DV case, a robbery gone wrong, and an 80s serial killer. What's missing? Oh wait, I know. Some absolutely heart-wrenching child abuse. Wouldn't be Florida without it. Sword and scale is proof of that. Buckle the fuck up if you haven't already. By the end of this one, you'll be wanting to pull the lever yourself. The evidence and testimony showed premeditated and continuous torture, brutality, sadism, and unspeakable horrors committed against all of the children over a period of time. A horrible tale of abuse and murder began to unravel early in 1972 when 11-year-old Ernest John Daubert III was found wandering the streets of Jacksonville in a brutalized daze. A warrant was issued for the person responsible. About a year later, Ernest's five-year-old sister, Honor, would be found in a Fort Lauderdale hospital with a note pinned to her shirt asking that she be sent to Wisconsin to be with her mother. Around this time, their suspect's car was found abandoned near a bridge with a suicide note on the front seat. What the police didn't know, however, was that their suspect hadn't actually offed himself. He'd fled to Texas. They caught up with him eventually, and he was extradited to Florida. A defendant found guilty by a jury of an offense punishable by death shall be sentenced to death unless the verdict includes a recommendation to mercy by a majority of the jury. When the verdict includes a recommendation to mercy by a majority of the jury, the court shall sentence the defendant to life imprisonment. A defendant found guilty by the court of an offense punishable by death on a plea of guilty or when a jury is waived shall be sentenced by the court to death or life imprisonment. Not much information is really available about Ernest John Daubert Jr., aside from his claims of suffering abuse as a child. Violence breeds violence. He's probably not lying about that. 
He was a sadistic bastard, and that isn't usually something that comes out of a good upbringing. This monster was convicted of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, child abuse, and child torture. I am struggling to write this. I actually had to take a break and go walk my dog. That's how bad this is. There's not a whole lot I can find about the murder of his son Ryder, who was a mere seven years old when he was beaten to death by the man who was supposed to protect him. The suffering his nine-year-old daughter Kellyanne went through in her short life is apparent in some court documents, though. On March 28, 1977, Daubert tried to appeal his death sentence and claimed that due to pre-trial coverage of the case, he was unable to receive a fair trial. The knee-jerk reaction to this case is to fucking hang him. Yeah, definitely. But even child abusers deserve their day in court. Jurors are tasked with the responsibility of deciding the fate of people accused of crimes. If they found him to be guilty of the heinous acts which he was linked to through much testimony and evidence, he should have just accepted his fate. During his hearing in March, the judge made it a point to list some of the abhorrent things Daubert had done to Kellyanne to show the aggravating circumstances that made him eligible for the death penalty. Over the short nine years Kellyanne had on this earth, her father had severely abused her and did whatever he had to in order to cover it up. She was beaten on many occasions, including a time where her injuries were so bad that her stomach swelled up and she looked like she was pregnant. He burned her hands. He poked her in the eyes. He held her underwater in both the toilet and the bathtub. Kellyanne received many beatings from her father. He knocked her into a wall and kicked her when she fell on the floor. This poor little girl was physically and probably mentally scarred by what he had done to her. She was beaten with a belt and a board on one occasion, so severely that she had welts and bruises on her cheek, down her neck, and across her back. These injuries were left untended and eventually led to infection. According to the court, until the body juices came out. Dobbert intentionally kept his daughter out of school and would not seek professional medical treatment because he didn't want anyone to know about the abuse. There was even a time where she hit her head on a table during a beating, and Dobbert had to sew up the gash with a needle and thread. On the night she died, she was kicked a number of times and ultimately choked to death. Being the great father that he was, Daubert put her body in a garbage bag and buried her in an unknown location. Her body was never found. She was nine. My daughter turned nine this year. She's a great kid. I have a hard time even grounding her for stuff because I feel bad. I yell a lot, I'll admit that. But I couldn't raise a hand to either of my kids. How anyone could do the shit to a child that Daubert did God damn, there is a special place in hell for child abusers. Jurors get it wrong sometimes. I probably don't have to tell you that. They got it wrong on this one. So very wrong. You're expecting me to tell you that Daubert was found guilty by a jury of his peers and they voted unanimously to euthanize him. That's what I do in this podcast. That's not what happened though. Those 12 people tasked with hearing this case, looking at all the evidence, including Daubert's confessions, 
and deciding his fate, voted 10 to 2 to spare his life and give him life imprisonment. They apparently found enough mitigating factors to keep him out of the electric chair. Calm down. Not everyone in that courtroom was blind. The trial judge determined that Daubert had enough aggravating factors to warrant a death sentence. The Supreme Court of Florida agreed with him. Daubert tried to appeal again in October of 1983, citing many issues with his trial, including refusal to instruct the jury on a lesser-included offense, improper closing argument, and unconstitutional aggravating evidence. He claimed that imposition of the death sentence after the jury's recommendation of life violated the integrity of the jury trial, due process, and the prohibitions against double jeopardy and cruel and unusual punishment. You can shut right the fuck up about cruel and unusual punishment. Pretty sure your kids would know more about that than you would. Ernest John Daubert Jr. was executed by electrocution on September 7, 1984, a fitting end for an abusive monster. Before his execution, his 17-year-old daughter, Honor, who he had abandoned at the hospital 12 years earlier, came to visit him. There was apparently a reconciliation. He was also visited by his mother, his sisters, and some religious leaders. Daubert didn't have any last words. He didn't request a last meal either, even refusing to eat the breakfast of chipped beef on toast that he was given. Florida man convicted in 1984 murder of babysitter while children slept is executed. This is a headline from five days ago, as of the time of writing, of course. I'm a busy woman. I have to do these a little bit in advance. But Florida seems to be back on track with actually executing people. DeSantis doesn't fuck around. Imagine being a teenager again. For me, that time was full of partying and other shenanigans, but for normal kids from normal families, it's often a time of learning responsibility and gaining a sense of independence. 14-year-old Karen Slattery was babysitting a 7-year-old and a 3-year-old one night in March of 1984 probably not expecting anything but maybe a spilled drink and a mess of toys to complicate her night. I can say for sure she wasn't expecting a 23-year-old man to break into the house and take her life. Karen was raped before being stabbed 18 times. The perpetrator was Dwayne Eugene Owen, who would go on to brutalize another woman just two months later. On the night of May 29, 1984, Georgiana Warden was asleep in her home. Owen broke in and beat her with a hammer before raping her. Her body was found by her children as they got ready for school the next morning. He was arrested on May 30th for unrelated charges. During his interrogation, he confessed to the murders. A fingerprint was also found to corroborate his confession. These weren't Owen's only crimes. He had also attacked two other women in Palm Beach County who thankfully walked away with their lives. I'm assuming these were the ones he was arrested for. Dwayne Eugene Owen was executed by lethal injection on June 15, 2023, after sitting on death row for a staggering 37 years. Karen Slattery's sister, who was only 10 at the time of the murder, said that the state of Florida took way too long to carry out the execution. 
No one came to visit Owen on his last day. Not even the usual religious people trying to get the condemned to accept Jesus and be forgiven. He offered no final words, but gave a written statement that was later released by the Department of Corrections. It read, I have transcended space and time. I have seen the visions of the crow. My energy and particles will transform ad infinitum. I will live on. I am Tula, 13. Didn't know they could get Flocka in prison, but alright. It says Florida. Maybe I shouldn't be too surprised that this guy was fucking crazy. His last meal was a bacon cheeseburger without a bun, onion rings, strawberries, a vanilla milkshake, and coffee. Last meals in Florida apparently have a $40 limit. Utah woman travels to Florida, dies of heat stroke. Okay, that one's obviously a joke. It hasn't happened yet. I'm sure one day I'll make my way over there. Floridians are my people after all. This one was a fucking long one. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give me some love by leaving a rumble or a like. Subscribe wherever you found me. Tell your friends, too. I'm pretty much everywhere now. You can get me on Instagram at LastMealPod if you want to see pictures of the sick fucks I talk about. Curse is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.